This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. The state budget is something that you'd think would be pretty well set when the legislature votes on it and sends it to the governor every two years. But as we're constantly reminded, the budget is an organic, ever-changing thing, and recently it's taken on some very scary characteristics. Turns out we didn't really balance the last budget, and the new budget is already out of balance enough that Governor Malloy made cuts that have angered social service agencies, towns and cities, hospitals, Democrats, and of course, Republicans. Today, where we live, our weekly news roundtable, The Wheelhouse, will dive in deep into the budget, along with other news of the week. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Colin McEnroe is on assignment today, but uh, we're joined by Keith Fan of his state budget reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. Good to see you once again, Keith. Thanks for having me back. And Sue Haig is here. She's a reporter for the Associated Press. Good to see you, Sue. Good morning. So we're going to dive into the budget, and this is your specialty, Keith. So we want to sort of walk through some of this. But before we get into some of our conversation about the budget with Governor Malloy earlier this week, we want to talk about last year's budget. Um, we're supposed to have a balanced budget at, at, at the state. Uh, every single time around. And the state comptroller uh, went through and ran the numbers, and it turns out we didn't balance the budget? Correct. We finished about $113 million in the red, which it's about two-thirds of 1%. Um, so on the one hand, someone might say, well, you know, come on, two-thirds of 1%. There, there are a couple reasons why that sticks out. The one, of course, was Governor Malloy kept repeatedly assuring everyone that there wasn't going to, be going to be a deficit. This is the first time his administration is finished in the red. It's also important because it draws down our emergency reserve, our rainy day fund. We only had about $500 million, which was basically 3 percent of the budget. A good, a good target to go for is 15 so now we're probably down to a little more than 2% in our reserve. And let's just explain this again. So whenever we finish in the red, which doesn't happen all that often, the money to make up the difference comes from the rainy day fund, as it's called. As you say, that rainy day fund only at around $500 million. So it's, it's not much of a fund, and now it's a little bit lighter. No, it's not when you consider that when we go into recession, when we go into full-blown recession, our income tax receipts, or all of our tax receipts, rather, can plunge as much as $1.5 billion in a single year. The bottom can just fall out. So that's what you need. That's what you want to save that that cushion for. Um, the the other reason why I think it's a little bit important, and I don't want people to get confused because they might say, well, what do you mean this is the first deficit? I've been hearing about deficits all the time. Well, we, we really get two types. There's what do you end the fiscal year with? What are the actual numbers when the books are closed? And then there are also the projected deficits, the warnings that we get from analysts that say next fiscal year, if we don't change things, if we have the same tax system and the same programs, we'll run in the red we'll, or we'll run in the black. That would be a projected surplus. But in, in any case, the, the latter, those projected deficits, that's what we're seeing so much of these days. So uh, beyond the projections, which we'll get to in just a mo- moment, Sue, I mean, how, how big a deal is it that we actually end in the red during a, a, state, uh, a state budget cycle? It's not supposed to go that way. We dip into the rainy day fund. It gets us talking about whether or not we've saved enough for a rainy day. Are people at the Capitol saying this is kind of a big deal? Well, the governor has already made some uh, mid-year, although we're only a couple of months into the fiscal year, budget cuts, and those are already getting uh, a lot of negative response. We've got hospitals that are upset. We have nonprofit agencies that provide mental health care and all different types of services. They're already upset. It's sort of a repeat of the 
debate that we had during the regular session where people were saying, listen, this is going to force us to close programs, to uh, lay people off. Uh, people who are in most need are going to suffer because of this budget. So it, it's just, as Keith said, it's just a continuation of the uh, the pain that uh, they that, that people have been talking about for what seems like uh, months and months and months. And again, the cuts to this year's budget, just a few years, I mean, the ink barely even dry, somewhere around $102, $103 million. It's a little bit less than the total amount that we were out of balance for the last budget cycle. Before I get some more analysis from Keith, let's actually listen to, to the governor talking about this and one of the reasons why he decided now was the time to make these new cuts. What concerns me the most is the uh, international situation and the volatil- uh, volatility in the, um, uh, uh, in the stock market. Hey, Keith, that was the governor talking uh, on the day of those cuts to reporters. He said something similar to me earlier in the week on where we live. So he's making the case that, look, the stock market doesn't look too good either. Now's the time to make the cuts. Well, I, it, I don't know that it's that simple, though. I mean, the, the, the governor's talking about what he anticipates. But the truth is his ability to make these these emergency cuts, these rescissions, the law says that he can do it whenever he believes that we might need them, in other words. You know, there's no actual financial threshold that has to be crossed. The legislature feels this is actually, um, to quote Yogi Berra, deja vu all over again. Um, back in June, just a couple months ago, we adopted a budget. That's done with negotiations. The Democratic majority and Governor Malloy's representatives meet privately. They decide, OK, we're set. We're all in agreement. This is the budget we're going to try to pass. The House Speaker had to move heaven and earth to get the votes. They pass it. As soon as they pass it, the governor then says to the same deal his administration signed off on, no, we've got to go back, reopen it, and lower the business taxes. And, he, and they felt they were thrown under the bus where he said, on day one, I said there had to be changes. By the way, day one meant on the day one, after I signed off on it and then got it back on my desk, then I decided on that day one, there need to be changes. So they felt that was misrepresented. Then they say, OK, we'll give you those changes. We'll roll back the taxes a little on the businesses. But you have to promise us we're not going to touch hospitals. We're not going to pay for these tax rollbacks with cuts to mental health. Fine. Done. The budget's passed. Three months, not even, as Sue points out, into the new fiscal year. There are emergency cuts to hospitals and mental health. Yeah, hospitals and mental health, and we're going to talk about a couple of those things. I I will just say in the political um, arena of all of this, you mentioned the negotiations that happened, people moving heaven and earth to get a budget actually done. That was uh, Democratic leadership and Governor Malloy's administration. Uh, Sue, once again, Republicans nowhere near the budget negotiations for this last budget that we're talking about right now, right? No, they they weren't part of it. and they are now calling for a special session. They want the legislature to come back. They said we should all sit on the table, sit at the table, maybe not on it, maybe <laughs> under the table and, and cover their heads. Yeah. And uh, they said we need to work together on this. And you know we've heard that before uh, in past uh, uh, budget crises. But also the now you're hearing from a couple of Democrats too that are saying you know listen maybe we should. Uh, go back to the table and, and talk about this. Kathy Abercrombie, who is the co-chairman of the legislature's Human Services Committee, she said that she just can't accept these cuts to the, the nonprofits. She said that it just it's, it's too much for this very vulnerable population to absorb. 
So, but meanwhile, the the leadership, the Democratic leadership, they don't seem thrilled with these cuts, but they still uh, are not calling for a special session. And, and the special session is something that the governor, I asked the governor about. He wasn't necessarily saying that that's something we need to do. It may well be that a special session is necessary. You mentioned Kathy Abercrombie. She was saying, hey, the governor maybe should scale back some of the plans he has for transportation, a lot of transportation funding that he wants to do. When I asked the governor about it, he said, well, look, maybe we get back together and we talk, but I need to get this lockbox for transportation funding, which sounds like a little bit of apples and oranges. On one hand, it's a special session to solve this budget crisis. On the other hand, something the governor desperately wants is this, as he calls it, lockbox, so that money that comes into the special transportation fund is then statutorily only used for transportation money. Right. It's sort of confusing, but it has to do with whether or not you need to, when you want to put a question before the voters uh, next November, and uh, you have to have certain percentage to vote in favor of the uh, constitutional question. So there is a He was talking about possibly having a special session before the legislature begins in February, and that way you would have two votes and you wouldn't need as many votes. It's complicated, but he doesn't seem to want to talk about the budget during that special session. He wants this lockbox to protect the money that um, they've set aside for transportation. I don't know if folks remember, but um, one half of 1% of the sales tax was dedicated to transportation. Yeah, and Keith, so pick up on that if you would. I mean, this whole idea of, of mixing transportation into all this, um, what Kathy Abercrombie is essentially saying is, look, the governor wants to make big investments in transportation. The whole state can probably agree we need to, but I'm also facing all these social service cuts, which are very important. It is kind of mixing these two streams here between uh, what the governor wants to do moving forward with transportation and what a lot of Democrats want to do to preserve funding to hospitals and preserve funding to social service agencies. Right. And you can add town aid to that. What Kathy Abercrombie is doing is what a small group of Democratic leaders are doing, and that is they're being very forward looking. They know, like as Sue pointed out, If you look at the budget, it says one half of 1% of the sales tax revenue goes to transportation. Then there's a little asterisk. That says starting in the year 2017-18. Same thing with a a big new municipal aid initiative that's going to freeze car taxes. Okay, this year, money to both municipal aid and transportation technically goes down a fractional amount. It starts to climb up next fiscal year, and the big money arrives July 1, 2017. Here's the problem. That same year it arrives, there's a built-in hole that's almost double the size of the new transportation and town aid money combined. So people like Kathy Abercrombie and Senator Beth Bayh and quite frankly, Speaker Sharkey and Senator Looney know that what the governor is trying to do is shield transportation from this huge projected deficit that's going to clobber everything else. In other words, they feel our, our, our budget baby, our town aid initiative – is going to be left out in the rain while his is put, you know, under the gazebo. And that, that's why they're not having it. Uh, we're talking today with Keith Fanna from the Connecticut Mirror, our budget Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, Sue Haig from the uh, Associated Press, a longtime reporter for the AP who's been covering the, the Capitol as well as anyone. There in the wheelhouse with us is Colin McEnroe is on assignment today. In a, mo- a moment uh, after our break, I want to get back and talk a little bit about one of the things Beth Bayh on the Democratic side is proposing, actually some some givebacks from state employees. But let's get, let's get to the hospitals piece of this. When Governor Malloy joined us on Monday, we asked asked him about the hospital cuts uh, that are proposed, and here's something he said. 
if we talk about the hospitals, let's remember there's 29 hospitals. All but three of them made money last year. Collectively, they made $916 million. Let's just remember that. Okay, and so here's now Bob Smanick. He's a Day Kimball CEO. He says it's unfair to group all the hospitals together. We appear to be being painted all with the same brush from the state's level. I think when one takes a look at what has taken place here in Northeast Connecticut, um, we are much more of a community-based primary care organization. We are much different than the larger tertiary hospitals in the state. So it's been frustrating to see how it seems that we're all being categorized together. So, Sue, this is part of a really big initiative that the governor seems to have undergone over the course of the last couple of years. He's saying, look, the hospitals, nonprofits, make an awful lot of money. Some of the smaller hospitals say, look, we're not like the big guys. We don't make money like that, and we certainly don't pay our CEOs the way that they get paid. But all across the board, hospitals are getting are getting hit under this new round of rescissions, and they seem to be in the crosshairs of future rescissions, future cuts, cuts like this. I mean, what's the impact of, of all this, and, and what are we looking at as the, as the hospitals say, look, we need, we need money from the state? Well, we've already seen the impact. Uh, I think this week, Hartford HealthCare announced that they're backing off on their merger plans uh, with uh, Day Kimball Hospital up in Putnam. And uh, they they are saying that the uh, the mid year rescissions the the cuts to Medicaid are they're blaming that for part of the their, their decision. Uh, the the hospitals have been kind of in the crosshairs for a while. It seems this was all stems back years and years ago with this convoluted plan to uh, tax them and then try to get reimbursement. Uh, to reimburse them from the tax from federal monies, it it was <laughs> dates back to uh, Jody Urell's uh, uh, tenure, but uh, it's it's interesting how they've been sort of ramping up their uh, their discourse with the governor and saying you know the hospital association um, is, is just outright right, refuted his claim that they had uh, 916 million dollars in profit. They say that that has to do with. Uh, some accounting measures. Uh, they're they're saying that he's implying that they haven't really done anything to change their business model, and uh, they're they're taking offense to it and saying that they're going to have to lay people off and close programs. The same thing as what I said earlier about the nonprofits. You know, this is interesting, Keith, because it actually rubs up against two big things we've covered on our show. I know you both re- uh, reported on an awful lot, which is on one side, I think a lot of Connecticut residents would say, well, look, these, these are nonprofit organizations. They do seem to make a lot of money. They're expanding constantly. We do have high CEO pay. Those are all the things that the governor's saying. Maybe the hospitals need to give back more. On the other side, cuts like this seem to have very real impacts on both workers at hospitals and also patients who go to those hospitals. Where do we end up with all this? Yeah, it, it's, here's the problem with that, by the way. It, it, to say that hospitals are, are making money is sort of the ultimate no-duh moment at, at the state capitol. Um, people will point out that uh, the hedge fund industry in Connecticut does really well, but that didn't stop us from giving uh, huge state assistance to Bridgewater. Uh, that didn't stop the administration from strongly opposing a Democratic initiative to restore a capital gains tax rate because everyone says, well, we don't want to uh, discourage the hedge fund industry or get them to leave the state. Then as Sue pointed out, uh, Governor Rell had started this provider tax system with nursing homes and under Governor Malloy, it was expanded to hospitals, but it was supposed to be just a back and forth arrangement. You give us money, we give you every penny back plus a little more, then we can go to Washington, get some reimbursement from them. We all come out winners. 
Four years later, the hospitals are paying in $560 million and they're getting almost none of it back. So they're simply saying that's a massive tax increase on one industry in a short period and why are we the only industry that's being uh, – where our profit margin is being highlighted? And I think in answer – long-winded answer to your question, what, what's it going to come to? Once the industry starts shedding jobs, you will see I think tremendous pressure brought to bear by the Democratic majority in the legislature. Well, it will be layoffs. That will do it. There's layoffs. We've also seen pressure from outside uh, companies coming in wanting to, to privatize hospitals, wanting to turn hospitals into, into for-profit companies. I mean I think one of the things that the governor and I talked about is maybe hospitals are becoming for-profit agencies already. Maybe that's the future of, of hospitals in Connecticut. They just become for-profit and then they get taxed. And that's very possible. But don't forget these – these facilities are still in most districts, the largest or the second largest or third largest employer, and, and people would be reacting the same way if it was a large manufacturer. Once the jobs start going in big numbers, the capital will will this will become probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest issues at the Capitol. We've we got to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk more with Keith Faniff of the Connecticut Mirror, Sue Haig of the Associated Press. We're going to talk more about the possibility of negotiations, maybe even give backs from state workers as we talk about the budget. There's other issues uh, in the news this week as we talk in the wheelhouse here on Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosk. It's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're joined today by Sue Haig. She's a reporter for the Associated Press. Keith Faniff, who's our budget reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. Usually Colin McEnroe is with us. He's not with us today. He's on assignment because tonight he's got freshly squeezed one of his events at Watkinson School. Tonight he's asking the question, what's the point of college? Boy, it's a great question. You can attend the discussion tonight at 7 o'clock at Watkinson School. We're going to tweet out a link to it at, at Where We Live. You can join us at Where We Live or call us with questions about the state budget at 860-275-7266. As we've been talking about different things around the state budget, the fact that our last budget was slightly out of balance. Now this new ballot budget seems to be out of balance enough that it's forced the governor, as he talked about earlier this week, to make cuts that have angered all sorts of folks. You know, Beth Bai from the Appropriations Committee, she's a leading Democrat. She's saying, Keith, maybe it's time to start talking about givebacks from state workers. Now, this is something that a lot of people talk about. Republicans like to talk about this an awful lot. I mean, where are we with this? Do, do we think that the, the way to fill the hole that you keep talking about, the looming hole, the big billion-dollar hole that's coming, is from actually sitting down with state workers and saying, we need to renegotiate again? I, I don't think Senator Bai, by any means, is saying this would necessarily be the single largest way to do it. She's she's definitely one of the more forward-looking people. I think what she's honestly trying to do is take um, the bipartisan gridlock off the issue of concessions. If you remember last spring, the Republican minority budget had talked about a, a large amount of concessions. It needed about $600 million a year from state employees. That's close to what Governor Malloy got back in 2011. Um, and just, what, six months ago – the, the Democratic mantra repeatedly was that's unrealistic. The employees gave in 09 and in 2011. Uh, that's fiction. Why are we even talking about it? Six months later, everybody knows that the nonpartisan analysts are warning as soon as you come back after the next state election, you've got a deficit that's probably as big as the last one you just resolved in April. You could be looking at another round of ugly cuts and tax hikes. And Governor Malloy at the last Bond Commission meeting was still pointing to the Republican budget and concessions as fiction, as not real, I think he said. And I think what Beth Bayh wants to do is basically say, 
okay, we know, everybody knows that when we get to 2017, that's one of, not the only, but one of the solutions. And we maybe can't even afford to wait now till after the next state election and until January of 2017. So I'm going to at least be the first person with a D after my name to say, OK, it's not a stupid idea to at least talk about the concept. It's not a stupid idea. Is it a realistic idea, though, of politically and for other reasons, Sue? I mean, do we actually, given the fact that people, state employee unions have said we've given an awful lot during the last couple rounds of concessions like this, um, is it realistic to think that this is where some of the money is coming from? <laughs> I don't know how realistic it is. Uh, they, you know, they agreed to this deal back in 2011. The unions uh, feel that they they made plenty of concessions back then. Uh, although what Beth Bay is talking about, as, as Keith has reported, uh, she's talking about furloughs, which and also possibly uh, reopening contracts. But furloughs may be more amenable to people. But the idea of that getting th- through the legislature is. Uh, questionable. You know, we just saw in, in the Connecticut Mirror, Keith, the Board of Regents for Higher Education, which operates the four regional Connecticut state universities and uh, community colleges, proposes uh, allowing them to use more part-time staff. Looks like the, the, the school system is, is trying to, to trim its sails a little bit. Maybe we're entering a time at which all the state uh, departments, the entire state is really going to have to trim in order to fix this looming budget crisis. This isn't the $103 million we're talking about right now. It's what Keith keeps telling us every time he comes on. We've got billions of dollars coming down the road. Right. I mean, we, we're still, our budget is not stabilized. What does the damage, what does the things that people really hate, that, that raises big taxes, large tax increases like you saw last April or big cuts to programs, it's when you have a projected deficit, when an analyst says to them in, in, in the spring, if you don't make these sacrifices in your new budget, it will run off the road. And they're basically saying in the next biennial cycle, you're probably looking – you could very well be looking at a deficit that's worse, a problem that's worse than the one we just resolved in April. And that resulted in, to remind everyone, $700 million a year in new taxes, almost half a billion in reneged tax cuts, tax cuts that were approved and promised but not delivered. We started a couple of years ago with a first estimate of a $700 million problem after the election. Uh, it grew to $1.4 billion in two years. By the time we actually got to this past April, it was up to $1.4 billion. This time out, we're starting at a billion, and we've got two years to watch what happens to it. Um, we're already seeing warnings that because of what's happening on Wall Street, that that deficit could grow very quickly, much worse than the one we just dealt with. We just got a couple minutes before our break. I, I mentioned earlier the fact that the Republicans at the state capitol, which don't they don't hold a whole lot of power, and they haven't for some time, Sue. They always say, "Look, bring us to the table. We'll help you negotiate with us. We'll help you get this through." I mean, I don't know if, if there's any changes there. Are there any new big ideas coming out of the Republican Party to say, "Here's how we're going to solve this structural budget deficit"? Is there anything coming from them? Uh, I I don't remember anything major. Keith might um, be able to interject. I think they just want a chance to actually sit down and talk about this. I mean, there have been like a handful of examples when they have sat down and uh, come up with um, bipartisan language. It was a couple of years ago when we had a uh, like a mid-year budget uh, issue and, uh, you know, also the gun control legislation. I mean, they came together on those type of things and they, they say, listen, we have to do this now and we all have to, to think about things. I mean, they in the past, they've brought up the, the issue of the state employees by far. I mean, that's that's where they see that there's, there's money there to be saved. Democrats always say Republicans don't really have a plan, so why do they come to the table? 
a lot of other people say, especially those with Republican state uh, representatives, Keith, well, maybe they should be at the table helping to negotiate something. Well, I mean, Sue's right, though. They're all the, almost all the Republicans' eggs are in the labor basket. They've been talking about cutting overtime or concessions. So when the Democrats say, what else do you have? The Republicans say, invite us to the room first. Democrats feel like the Republicans are going, I've got a secret. I've got a secret. Let me in and I'll tell you what it is. I think unless the GOP really produces a list of across-the-board cuts that make sense, that they're not going to be at the table. Let's just talk about one taxing piece of this that I talked to Governor Malloy about. His big transportation plan is something that he wants to fund in the midst of all this permanent state of fiscal crisis. And a third rail seems to be for everyone the idea of talking about tolls. So many other states, Sue, actually impose tolls to help pay for transportation funding. Now, the governor said, unless I get a lockbox, almost nothing really will change. Is there any talk at all at the state capitol right now about how some sort of passive toll collection system, we've got about a minute left, might actually help to defray some of our problems in the state and pay for transportation? It's still being discussed as far as I know. I, I mean, the, this committee that the governor set up is uh, still working on ideas for uh, fundraising, I, fundraising, <laughs> raising money to pay for this uh, massive project. And they've asked for some extra time, so we'll have that by the end of the year. But, you know, it's, it is, as you said, a third rail. I, I, people aren't keen on it. But there's a lot of people still that, you know, talk to uh, Representative Guerrera. He says we have to have it. She said fundraising. Before we go to fundraising, Keith, 30 seconds here. Do you think there's any chance that we get tolls anytime soon? Uh, slim to bupkis and Slim's <laughs> almost out of the room. Uh, the, the sales tax money was just to handle the first five years of transportation spending growth. The long-term future is going to be something like tolls. You saw the reaction to taxes. I don't even know if we're going to hand on, hang on to the little transportation money we have. Uh, Keith Vaniff covers the state budget uh, for the Connecticut Mirror. Sue Haig covers the state house for the Associated Press. We're going to actually turn to a few of my colleagues to talk about our budget here at WNPR because we got to balance our budget, too. we got to pay the bills. So here's some folks telling you how you can support where we live and everything else, uh, everything else you hear here on WNPR. Don't go away. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, we hear a lot about the addictive qualities of opioid drugs, but not enough about the deaths or the severe symptoms of withdrawal in opioid users who never knew they were addicted until they stopped taking the drugs. We'll revisit an interesting conversation about how we treat pain in America. That's tomorrow's Where We Live. Today in the program, it's the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. Colin McEnroe is on assignment, but we're happy to be joined by Sue Haig, reporter for the Associated Press, and Keith Vanoff, the budget reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. We've been going through some of the state budget uh, interesting items. You can join us at 860-275-7266. Of course, one of the things floated some time ago, years ago actually, to help solve a budget uh, problem is Keno. The state of Connecticut is getting into the Keno business slowly, albeit. Um, they just reached a deal with the Mashantucket, Pequot, and Mohegan tribes regarding Keno. And this was really, Sue, the last stumbling block here, right? Keno wasn't going to happen unless the tribes signed off on it. Right. Uh, they have to agree because they have a compact and they have the right to uh, offer this game and nobody else does. So uh, the, it feels like we've uh, been writing about Keno for what seems like forever because it actually was in the budget and they were all set to go ahead with it. Um, and then uh, they pulled the legislature pulled the plug because they didn't want it, and then the lottery came forward this year and said, "Listen, we really want Keno because we need to uh, diverse, diversify our uh, gambling offerings." So it, this was expected to be signed off under the deal. The tribes they each get twelve and a half percent of the revenues, and they get to still offer Keno at their casinos. So uh, and then. 
it's still kind of uncertain, like how much money this is going to generate. Uh, it's probably not going to uh, solve the problems that we were talking about earlier. But uh, you know, the, the lottery is hoping that eventually, that Ann Noble, I talked to yesterday, the uh, the president and CEO of the lottery, said that this game takes a while to ramp up. She'd be thrilled in the first fiscal year if they brought in fifty million in sales. Uh, not all of that would go into the general fund, though. That they have, and then eventually they're hoping maybe up to two hundred, maybe three hundred million. But then that doesn't count um, their costs and the payout for the prizes. They, they, and they've got to they, so they've got to give some money back to the tribes. They've got to yeah. pay out. The, they've got to pay out the winners. They've got to put it in these places. I think what the budget I saw Keith was like thirty million dollars the first year. But as we've reported on the program, as you've talked about, as Sue has talked about, I don't know where those numbers come from. If even thirty million dollars is anywhere near realistic. Yeah, that, there was in, in the fiscal note in the budget. There was a number. It was in the high twenties, um, and that was from the legislature's nonpartisan analysts. And quite frankly, uh, the folks at the lottery were saying privately that uh, we think that might be a little rosy. But the last thing they wanted to do was gripe and risk having it pulled out of the budget. Nobody's looking at this as a big money thing. The the people who supported it mostly see it as the believers think it's something that could yield some significant dollars well down the road if the lottery's predictions that it'll make them more more competitive with other states if they're right. You know, if they actually want to make money, it seems this week, DraftKings and FanDuel. Just invest in <laughs> fantasy sports, Keith, That's right? all you do is hear commercials for those. You just do commercials constantly. This is all happening at exactly the same time, too, as the tribes are negotiating the, the opportunity to get a new casino in the state. And, and I know, Sue, this hasn't really been touted as a money-making venture for the state. It's sort of a jobs-saving venture. But this is in some ways all tied in. Connecticut is still banking on the idea that gambling somehow is going to, whether it's going to save jobs, it's going to save a little bit of money in the budget, it's going to bring us in some some revenue. Um, how do people feel about gambling right now at the state capitol? Because every time we turn around, people are saying, well, we don't want to get into the gambling business. And then, well, another budget hole. And here we are again. It's Keno. It's another casino. Well, we'll find out next uh, next session when the legislature comes back in February how they really feel about gambling, because that's when this whole thing with the, with the uh, jointly run casino by the tribes is really going to uh, come to the forefront because that's when they have to decide whether or not they want to allow them to go ahead with it. But meanwhile, the, the tribes are still uh, pushing ahead. They uh, just uh, issued the RFP for communities to respond to, uh, and also, I guess, private uh, landowners can respond um, and offer up parcels and say, hey, please build it here. Meanwhile, um, MGM Grand is still, uh, MGM, not Grand, uh, MGM International or Resorts International, uh, they are still sort of trying to fight back. Uh, there, we have this legal battle uh, between Connecticut and Massachusetts over this whole issue. So it, you know, it's still the the, the saga continues. Do do we end up with a whole lot of uh, casino talk, gambling talk during this legislative session, Keith? Do you think? I don't think we get a whole lot. I think we definitely get some. I think also, uh, uh, you watch the tribes. Their message is not just we need this to compete, but we almost need this to buy some time. They're they're still they're talking about going forward with trying to diversify the product that they offer. You're trying to see them offer more concerts and other things so they can turn themselves into a, a tourist site that offers more than gambling. 
um, or a lot more other things than gambling. I think they figure the more time they have, they'll evolve into something that's much more of a hybrid than just a casino. Okay, so gambling uh, involves a certain amount of risk. So does the insurance industry. <laughs> and something you've been following, Sue, is you know our state is actually leading the review of the merger between Anthem and Cigna. This is going to have huge ripples all across America, certainly here in Connecticut in the insurance industry. 26 states are involved in this merger. So uh, how is it that Connecticut's leading this investigation? Because um, Anthem wants to buy Cigna. Cigna's based in Bloomfield. And so uh, because of that, Connecticut has to sort of be the ringleader for the state review of this uh, um, this merger. Uh, believe me, I have never covered this stuff before, so I, it was a big learning experience. To, to It's very complicated, and the Department of Insurance has to uh, sort of organize uh, discussions between the different states. Uh, they have to uh, sort of um, put out their proposal, what, what they, their research and have um, the other states can uh, look at it and see what they want to do when it comes to their uh, decision, whether or not to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down to this. And there's also on, on top of this a federal antitrust review. Uh, so this is going to take uh, well into uh, next year to decide whether or not this uh, massive merger will happen. Because if it does, then they would be the largest health insurer in the country. And there's that other merger that, that involves Aetna that is being proposed right now, essentially taking us down from five big players in the insurance industry to just three. And Connecticut, of course, at the epicenter of this. Two interesting political things around this. One is that Cigna is one of these firms that got money from the state, the state DECD, to, to keep around a certain number of jobs, Sue. And I know that this is part of it as well. We're really concerned about whether or not this is going to be good for uh, individuals and people who are in the insurance marketplace, but it, it also means a lot to the state about whether or not we're able to keep the jobs here. Well, the uh, the documents that Aetna um, provided to the uh, Department of Insurance, which the public can take a look at if they want, is like 3,000 pages that have been posted to the have Department fun. of Insurance's yeah. website. But on the first page, people will be interested to note that they said they do not expect to um, – cut any jobs. They expect the, the jobs to be, to remain the, the same. And, and on the Cigna front, the, the same thing. We're, we're expecting not to lose jobs out of the Cigna merger, out of this Aetna merger, but of course that's all part of the review. Um, the other piece of this is the insurance commissioner, Catherine Wade, hasn't recused herself from this entire look at Cigna and Anthem, even though she's a former Cigna lobbyist. And she was a vice president there, I understand, and also her husband um, is employed by Cigna, but she, uh, when before all this sort of happened, uh, she ended up putting a, a letter into the uh, Ethics Commission and told them uh, that she has recu- that she has like, she's no longer getting paid by them. She doesn't have any uh, uh, retirement funds with them. Uh, they put their money in a blind trust. The, the husband doesn't have any kind of uh, uh, say-so with the Department of Insurance, doesn't have any interaction. And so she contends that she still has uh, the right to uh, review this. And the review is very structured. Uh, it's, you know, they, they have like these set things that they can take a look at. So it, it would, she, her argument is, is that, you know, there's no room for her to have any kind of, you know, real sway personally. I, I, we got an, an email from Liz here, Keith, and this is for you. What percentage of the state budget going forward to 2020 is due to pensions? Many of us may have noticed that there was a big story about pension obligations uh, in the Wall Street Journal this week. Uh, there's a lot of talk about this. So answer, Liz. I mean, how much of the money that we owe down down the road is due to pensions? Uh, Liz, you're putting me to the test here. Um, 
doing math in my head, stalling for um, long division. I can tell you this. I know that 35 percent of the budget are salaries and benefits um, combined. Um, you're probably talking in the realm of about uh, maybe a little under 10 percent. But you're talking not just pensions for state employees. You're talking also about pensions for all of Connecticut's uh, public school teachers. So, okay, so that's an awful that's an awful lot of money. And and I guess as we start to to look at how the state legislature might consider uh, fixing some budget holes, I mean, I don't know, Keith. How do we attack this? You and I have been having these conversations for years and years and years and years and years. We've got more looming budget deficits. We've got all sorts of pension obligations for state workers and for school teachers. We've got um, maybe revenues that are not are not lining up with all of our expenses. What are the things? I mean, if Keith Fan have had a magic wand, what are the things that we start to to wave that wand over and, and, and fix in order to get ourselves a little bit more fiscally solvent here? I just scribbled down my favorite state pie chart on the budget. I actually have a favorite <laughs> state pie chart in the budget, and isn't that just a little bit sad? I don't. Um, <laughs> but in, in a I have nutshell— a pie. That's about it. I, I, like, I like peach pie. But anyway, please continue. If 35 percent of the budget is tied to salaries and benefits, unless you can reopen negotiations, that's locked in by contract. About 15 percent is municipal aid. Uh, that's about as sacred a cow as it comes, but we'll put a pin in that for a minute. About 10 percent is— our, our payments on our bonded debt, the money we borrowed for roads and bridges and building schools, not a lot of flexibility there. You've got to pay the people you, who bought your bonds. About 35 percent of your programs are for the poor. The money goes to social service providers, hospitals, doctors. Here's the problem. When you cut money that's Medicaid reimbursable, every dollar we take away from hospitals – Okay, uh, Washington takes away 67 cents from us. Money doesn't come from the feds. And about 5% is miscellaneous. So don't kid yourself. Either you, if, if, if you're not talking raising taxes, you can either try to bring the unions to the table and also lay people off if they won't, or you're talking about cutting municipal aid or the poor. There's just there's no nice way to, to slice it up. There's no huge amount of money in the couch cushions. I really wish you were going to make me feel better, but that, you just—that's not going to happen. You never make me feel better I'm, about the state budget. I'm the, I'm the budget Darth Vader. I'm not the Obi Wan. <laughs> so, so let's turn to actually uh, one of our our U.S. senators. The U.S. has pledged to increase the number of refugees brought in from the conflict in Syria. Something people have been watching very, very closely. But refugee resettlement is a long process. Uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal announced a four point plan to expedite this process. It's something you've been looking at, Sue, and it's obviously it's something on, on the tip of everyone's mind right now as we see the flow into Europe. And we think about how the U.S. can help to uh, alleviate some of these problems here. What is the senator uh, proposing? He is very interested in trying to speed up the process. There was a uh, news conference earlier this week where uh, there were various um, uh, church groups that were there that were talking about just how people from Syria have to wait maybe 18 months to three years to get into the U.S., it's a very arduous process because I guess we don't have, obviously, a lot of intel to do the background checks on people from Syria. And uh, Senator Blumenthal has met with this group, uh, this coalition of um, this interfaith coalition, and they gave him some ideas. And uh, among them, he's, he's talking about trying to el- eliminate a lot of the um, the duplicative and wasteful processes that really slow this process up. Um, he wants to. Uh, somehow 
wants to expand an existing program that allows refugees with relatives in the U.S. to apply directly to the United States federal government and not have to go through the U.N.'s High Commission on Refugees. Um, he um, also is proposing allowing video conferencing for security screenings, but he stresses that his plan would not uh, weaken our security uh, checks of, of these folks. But it, it's, it is really interesting that He's got, he got these ideas from a group that I was actually really – I didn't know too much about, this interfaith coalition that came together several weeks ago. And, and they're really doing a lot to try to welcome uh, these refugees to Connecticut. They've come up with this plan called 10 and 10, which is uh, they want to place 10 families each in 10 cities across the state. Well, and, and, you know, as we see, uh, Connecticut's population is shrinking, and we see that uh, our immigrant population is the only thing that seems to be growing. Uh, maybe uh, Senator Blumenthal is, has something in mind about growing the overall population here and bringing in some people who, who could uh, help solve some of the problems we've already talked about. I can only imagine, though, Sue, that some of the things that he's talking about are going to meet with uh, quite a bit of resistance from some of his colleagues in the Senate. Uh, we've got to leave it there. Sue Haig uh, covers the State House and much more for the Associated Press. Always good to see you, Sue. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And Keith Vanity is our state budget reporter for the Connecticut Mirror, our Darth Vader of the budget. Keith, thank you so very much. Thank you. Now we're going to turn to some of our colleagues. We're going to tell you how you can support the wheelhouse and all of the programming you hear on Where We Live and everywhere else on WNPR. Thanks so much for joining us, Where We Live.